0: Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us.
1: Please welcome Jim Jarmusch.
2: Oh, good morning. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here, and I, I really uh, th- we should all support Museum of the Moving Image because it brings it's such a gift to New York City. So, I'm very happy to be here. Okay.
1: Well, thanks and good night. We could, that's all we needed to hear. So, so okay. um, I, I got.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm going to Atlantic City. Okay.
1: Well, I know, I, I've, I actually have read, um, in researching and getting ready for tonight, I read all these interviews with you where you talk about how you um, hate to look back at your films and um, hate to analyze them, so we're in for a very unpleasant night for you, I think.
2: <laughs> oh, you told me we were going to look at the future films <laughs> Okay. We have clips from my future work. That's good. But okay. But <laughs> well,
1: we'll get to that. We're going to um, start, actually, with... Uh, but before, before we see the first clip from Perminification, another thing I wanted to say about in, um, preparing for the program was that uh, there's a few people um, who mentioned past jobs that you had in New York. We're sort of in your old stomping grounds here. Uh, one person is our projectionist who ran the St. Mark's Cinema where you were an usher. Ah, yes. Um, and then there's somebody here from Rafik Film and Video. Oh man, yeah. So, so could you talk about some of your <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> talk about
1: some of your, your early jobs? Like how were how were you as an usher?
2: Uh, it Was not very good because um, it was the St. Mark's Cinema. They used it's where there's a Gap store now, and it was like a third run uh, movie right. house. Um, one time the and the my I got paid like two fifty an hour or something, and it, one time my boss told me to tell the Hell's Angels that they couldn't smoke, <laughs> and I said, Hey man, for two fifty an hour, you know, you go tell them. I, I'm not telling them anything. <laughs> Or once I shined a flashlight in a corner and saw an oral sex act, so I quickly turned my light out. And and then I had the night manager was a guy a Puerto Rican guy named Ike, and we used to, I probably shouldn't tell this, but we used to go in the theater, this was his idea, (laughs) when it was closed at night and try to shoot rats with a twenty-two caliber pistol. <laughs> and we did that several times. Ike was very excited by that, but I thought it was a little freaky. <laughs> but, so that was one job, okay, yeah. Okay, then Rafiq, were you... Well, uh... Rafiq was an amazing, amazing character. In fact, I bought my film stock for Permanent Vacation from Rafiq. Um, He sold things very inexpensively. You didn't ask where they came from. (laughs) He had lots of film supplies, uh, editing supplies. He had a screening room called the OP Screening Room. And what was the most fantastic was he had Thanksgivings at uh, Rafik's place. And it was incredible because... uh, I, J- Jack Smith would be there, mm-hmm. Harry Smith, Robert Frank, all these amazing people. Jack Smith always, several years in a row, smeared all my food with cranberry sauce when, because I, I said, <laughs> just put a little there, and then he put them everywhere. Um, one time, Harry Smith said, man, could you go home and get a joint and come back here? Do you, do you live nearby? And don't bring sticks and stems, you know? <laughs> and the great Harry Smith. But the, those Thanksgivings were incredible. Wow. And uh, I did some construction work for Rafiq with some other crazy people trying to expand his uh, setup there. And he was, like, really nurturing, amazing guy. So yeah, I worked for him for a while.
1: So I, I you know, I've read about um, you know you coming to New York from, from Akron, Ohio, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Contain yourself. <laughs>
2: uh, and that you that, that you went to We're Akronites. Right. People don't realize. It. Ah, that's good.
1: Well, I had heard that you, you know, that you went to Paris and saw many films at the Cinematheque there. But I also read that there was a, a theater in Akron. Is this true that, that at midnight would show like weird movies, like Andy Warhol films and B yes, movies? because uh, maybe that was more of your formative Cinematheque.
2: It was in a way. It was. Uh, I think it was in the in the daytime. It was a art film theater, which back then meant like soft porno type mm-hmm. stuff. And then on the weekends, <laughs> they had underground cinema, hmm. um, I think on Saturday nights or maybe Friday and Saturday nights at midnight, which was amazing. And I got to see uh, Chelsea Girls by Andy Warhol. I got oh. to see films by Stan Brakhage. Also, yeah. they used to show um, those Buster Crab serials of uh-huh. Flash Gordon. Right. But they showed a kind of really a mishmash of stuff. But it, it was, you know... Cinema for stoners, basically. Right. But a lot of interesting things I saw. They'd interject a cartoon and then have a Michael Snow film, and then Hmm. you know, so it was pretty amazing for Akron at that time. Uh, So it did open up a lot of things. Mm -hmm.
1: But you, you, um, when you came to New York, you were studying literature first at Columbia, then went to Paris, and then came back and studied. Decided to go into film school. Yeah. And, and made um, permanent vacation. We're going to see a clip from that, but that was made during the period at NYU, but was, it was not exactly a student film, was it?
2: Well, it was supposed yeah. to be a student film, but then <laughs> they, when I, after I, I made, I did two things that were maybe not correct. One was I got a, a scholarship, um, a fellowship, ironically, a Louis B. Mayer Fellowship. <laughs> who was really a nasty destroyer of cinema. And they sent the money to me rather than to the school. Whoops.
1: So instead
2: of paying my tuition, I paid for my film. Right. And then I was told that I owed the school money, and also you weren't allowed to make a film of that length as a thesis project.
1: That it was too, It was like a feature length. Yeah, you were.
2: Yeah, you were supposed to make a twenty-minute film or something. Yeah. But I, I guess I wasn't in class the day they explained that. <laughs> <laughs> but I met a lot of amazing people at NYU: uh, Tom Dechillo and Spike Lee and Sarah Driver and uh, a friend of mine, Richard Bowes. Um, so I had some good, some good experiences there. But then I didn't get a degree there because I broke those rules and owed the money and stuff so but I did make this film and and uh, I made it I was inspired really by um people like Amos Poe and Eric Mitchell who were making films at the time really like do-it-yourself uh just wanting to make a film and not not knowing how to basically
1: it was called the no wave I mean it became known as the no yeah no Wave. super eight often right
2: off in Super 8, there was a great uh, thing called the New Cinema on St. Mark's Place where a group of people rented a storefront and projected films there. Um, Vivian Dick, James Nares, mm. um, Amos, uh, Charlie Ahern. A lot of interesting stuff was going on. So that really, Amos and Eric were always saying, when are you going to make your film, Jim? When I was a, a little younger than them, mm. but sort of following them around, you know, because, man, you guys made a movie, you know. And they were very encouraging, so they kind of really helped me to get my courage up to make a a film of my own, which became this.
1: Okay, so we're going to see a part of um, the opening section of Permanent Vacation, and of course all the clips are on um, DVD tonight, so...
0: My name is Aloysius Christopher Parker and if I ever have a son, he'll be Charles Christopher Parker, just like Charlie Parker. But people I know just call me Allie and this is my story or part of it. I don't expect it to explain all that much, but what's a story anyway except one of those connect-the-dots drawings that in the end forms a picture of something? That's really all this is. That's how things work for me. I go from this place, this person, to that place or person. Well, you know, doesn't really make that much difference. I've known all different kinds of people, hung out with them, lived with them, watched them act things out in their own little ways. And to me, to me, those people I've known are like a series of rooms, just like all the places where I've spent time. You walk in for the first time curious about this new room, lamp, TV, whatever. And then after a while, the newness is gone completely. And then there's this kind of dread, kind of creeping dread. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I guess the point of all this is that after a while, something tells you, some voice speaks to you, and that's it. Time to split, go someplace else. People are gonna be basically the same, maybe use some different kind of refrigerator or toilet or something. But this thing tells you, and you have to start the drift. You may not even want to go, but things will inform you. So here I am now in a place where I don't even understand their language. But you know, strangers are still always just strangers. And the story, this part of the story. Well, it's how I got from there to here, maybe I should say from here to here.
2: you never see the guy
1: yeah i know i know i know you have to it's it's on um actually they released this um along with strangeland paradise on the criterion dvd but yeah we didn't see aloysius parker who's um the character who's narrating who's um interesting character because he's like he's part of this scene of sort you know this new york in the late 70s um which is all sort of a lot of outsiders living in the village but he's even an outsider to that scene like he his he listens to 50s rock instead of punk music yeah yeah so it's um and he's like you know one of the first of many of your characters who just sort of don't quite know where, where to fit in they're just looking
2: yeah I made the film I wrote I wrote it to for Chris Parker the the who plays the character Aloysius and uh He was a friend of mine. I think I met him. He was like 15 when I met him. And uh, he had a great way to sneak into CBGBs because um, he knew this back door. He he would somehow get in and then open the back door where they used to load things in and then let us in. Mm -hmm. So he he was very uh, important in that way. But he... He was very animated in real life, and then when I started making the film, he slowed way down. So it really shook the whole conception I had of the film. But I followed that. But
1: you responded to that because the film has a kind of
2: yeah, I couldn't quietness. manipulate him yeah. to do you know to be more animated as he was in real life. He. he um, Richard Helen the Voidoids wrote a song about him called The Kid with the Replaceable Head in fact <laughs> and uh, he was kind of a fixture uh, sort of a con man kid punk rock but he knew a lot about music we're still friends and um, hmm. interesting person so I, I wanted to build the film around him but I was in f- kind of a shock when I Found that his rhythm was going to be very different while we were <laughs> shooting, yeah. so I just adapted to that, and it even affected kind of the rhythm of the filmmaking.
1: Hmm. And so you were sort of writing it as you went. I mean, right?
2: yeah, I had a script of some kind, you know, yeah. if you want to call it that. So, yeah, and this apartment that where it ended uh, was John Lurie's apartment at the time. Hmm. And a funny thing is. Um, Jean-Michel Basquiat was a friend of ours and he used to paint as Samo on the streets back then at night. He used to paint on walls, right? And so he used to crash at our places. And while we were filming that very scene, um, he was asleep under the camera in a sleeping bag. And when we'd put the camera on on the other side to, to, you know, reverse it, we'd just pull him under... So he was never, you know, in the shot. So um, he's okay. actually there, but sleeping. <laughs> so,
1: well, we'll get we'll get to see John Larry in the next clip because, of course, the next movie um, is *Stranger Than Paradise*, um, which opened commercially. What what happened with *Permanification*? Did was it did it play festivals? I mean, what was the sort of life of the film?
2: Ah. Uh. It got invited to a festival. I'd never really heard of any festivals <laughs> except Cannes back then. Right. And it got invited to a festival in Germany, um, Mannheim. And then it, it won a prize there, um, which was, I don't know, $1,000 or something. For me, a lot of money. And then it was um, actually to, it was accepted to the Berlin Film Festival. They saw it in Mannheim. And when I showed it in Berlin, it was bought by German television for like $12,000, which is what the film cost, basically. So I was very lucky, because I owed money to my vicious landlords and stuff, and (laughs) I got to come home and pay them off, and pay off the film eventually, so. Uh,
1: Okay, well, let's um, see, this is a scene with, uh, we'll do the next clip, the clip from Strange in Paradise, and it's a... scene with John Lurie and um Esther Bellin Ballant um
2: You know, this is where we eat
0: in America. I got my meat, I got my potatoes, I got my vegetables, I got my dessert, and I don't even have to wash the dishes.
1: So did, did um that story also develop kind of as, as a response to the personalities of the actors? It seems like that's a way, something that you you do a lot you have it, it, you're looking at, at at John Lurie and something about his character and his way of being and and you team him up with these with Richard Edson and esther ballant
2: yeah I mean uh, we were just making a film among friends of something yeah. that we really thought no one would ever see, but we had the chance to make first uh the first third of this film was initially a short film. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I wrote the other two sections while I was editing it. But the first third really is a film really by me and John. Because John John and I came up with the story together. Um, a, a lot of things we sketched out and John kind of improvised. Um, we both knew Esther. So the idea of, of working, you know, having her character... Um, came from both of us you know so we really um, John should kind of get more credit than he does for really like co-writing that part of the film and and sort of helping me get it together I mean I wrote it into a script and I directed it but John really um, was really a a little project that he and I just kept playing with and then actually did it so he was really important in in the, the whole conception of the film.
1: Do you remember what it was like that interested him about this character? I mean, I, you know, about, about, um, like what he was sort of going for?
2: Well, we were talking a lot about how, uh, you know, this was in 1982, right? Uh So we were a little bit fed up with several things, sort of the style of the kind of scene of, you know, red leather pants and stuff and the rock and roll thing and, uh, and also this new like, music video thing. where Fast cuts. Fast cuts. And yeah. that was starting to affect cinema as well. And everything looked like a commercial to us. So we were kind of reacting to certain things aesthetically that we kind of, you know, we wanted to make these guys look like guys that would hang out at the racetrack, uh, but not at Max's Kansas City kind of thing so which is where we hung out kind of so yeah. <laughs> i don't know we were reacting to something but i, I i'm not real good at like analyzing yeah. that but we were just going from ideas and we just made this little 30 minute film and then we were happy with it so i wrote more while i was cutting it
1: you said, there was something that you that um you know I read in an interview with you and i think it was about this film but i think it applies to a lot of the movies where you you have characters in films where if you just stop the film at a certain point, the audience wouldn't be, like, worried about what's going to happen next. You know, like, they, this idea of sort of just being in the present, and you have these characters who don't really worry about what their next move is going to be. Like, what's great about this movie is this, they sort of just decide to go to Cleveland, but there's no, like, great reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're not worry so much about the next move.
2: It sounds kind of flippant, but, you know, life doesn't really have a plot, so... Right things just kind of happen. And my stories tend to be... I forgot that in Permanent Vacation, he says, what's a story anyway, but connect the dots that form a picture of something. And that's kind of how I approach scripts as I prepare them. I collect the dots and then, you know, make a picture out of it as I'm, you know, after I've collected them, and that becomes my script, my story, so... But it starts more with characters and with little ideas and little incidents. And uh, I don't know, a few films. I've tried to make a few films that were based completely on things that would be eliminated from a normal plot, like... uh, The in-between scenes. Yeah, I made a film, Night on Earth, with taxis. And really, that's the kind of thing that you wouldn't have those scenes in the film. Or coffee and cigarettes. It's just little incidents of people taking time out from whatever they're supposed to be doing, so.
1: Um, and and you, you said before that you were sort of making this for your friends, um, not thinking beyond about the, the commercial life of the film, but I, I remember very well, like, the sort of scene that this film created, because I waited in line at the cinema studio, it was like a, you know, surprise hit, and there wasn't really a big independent scene, I mean, this was a good five years before Sundance sort of took off, um, but it was a it was really something. Like, it was really a, a, a moment and a phenomenon, this film. Yeah, we
2: were surprised. So. <laughs> <laughs> but happy. I'm still yeah. doing it, so I, I got right. lucky. So. <laughs>
1: um, I realized, in, in, when I picked the clips, I realized that I, for some reason, gravitated to a lot of eating scenes, so we just saw a dinner scene. We're going to see a dinner scene from Down by Law, which is Roberto Benigni's character uh, preparing a rabbit um, oh, okay. meal, so... Um, I don't know, you guys are going to get really hungry watching all these clips, but why don't don't we watch... I'm not so sure with this. Right, (laughs) maybe not with this scene, yeah. But let's see the next clip from Down by Law.
0: Before, she is very kind with the rabbit. She called the rabbit, Oh, the rabbit, I like this little rabbit too. But the eyes of the rabbit... Suddenly, the rabbit dead. Very strange mother by mother. Very strange, yes. My father, no, he's very strong, but with the rabbit, he, he is afraid. My sister, I have uh, one mother and three sisters, Bruno Albertina Anna. I had a, a, a picture of my mother in my room, uh, smiling uh, with a rabbit, uh, you know, her and the other, so... Sometimes I dream my mother that called call me, Robertino. Come on, come on. No, I don't want. Come on, come on. I'm my neck. yes. You are. My mother. Very strange mother. But I love my mother. Isolina, my father Gigi, and my sister Bruna, Albertina, Anna. My family, and my rabbit. And I love her to catch to dream right. what is what Jack Jack Jack, and Jack! <laughs> You come on come on to eat the animal I have catched the rabbit I run half an hour behind <laughs> very good come on Jack come on sit down <laughs> sit down the fire yes Yes, taste! Yes, taste! Taste, Zach. taste! Eh? Taste! And moment! Eh? Uh. Yeah! Yeah! Eh? <laughs> 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 oh of God, sir, I haven't... Uh, garlic, uh, rosmarino, very important, and olive oil. But uh, he's good, eh? Eh? <laughs> 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 it's disgusting, one Yes! Sir, sir. <laughs> Robert, it tastes like a tire. Yeah, I know, it's very good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, I, of course, want to ask you about Roberto Benigni, but one thing that just struck me with the last two clips was how you've talked about the importance of Buster Keaton to you as a filmmaker. I mean, obviously, comedy is one of the uh, important elements of your films, but also a, a sort of similar sensibility of um, framing fr- from Keaton. Could you talk about
2: it? Well, Keaton's one of my favorite directors of all time. Um, just the, the content of the thing, the, the, you know, just kind of human nature this fragile character, the idea of him not expressing things with his face. Um, The way he filmed things was really uh, elegant in a way and, uh, I don't know, very moving because he often used very wide frames, wide shots so that he was small in the frame and the world around him was stronger than him somehow, bigger than him. And you become very... Empathetic because of his style, the way he did it, Uh, very opposite of Chaplin, who um, is a little more always central in his uh, the films he directed, his character, and also Chaplin, who I also love, but Chaplin had the luxury to shoot things over and over. He could uh, perfect a gag and then go shoot it again. Buster Keaton shot almost everything once and he had broken bones from every film he made from doing his own stunts. And, uh, you know, he came from like a vaudeville circuit. And, uh, but really as a filmmaker, just something so moving to me, yeah. Buster Keaton. Yeah. And there's something I, I only learned um, a couple of years ago. You probably know this, but, Buster Keaton's films, he was called in by the studio in, uh, like, 1932. They're now making talkies, and they told... I forget which studio executive, which It was bastard. probably Louis
1: Mayer. Probably it was,
2: was Louis Mayer. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, we're, we're dropping your contract. We might have some roles for you in these talkies. And, by the way, your existing films have been um, destroyed because we needed to extract the silver from the prints... So your films don't exist anymore. And um, Buster Keaton believed that they were gone completely until the 1950s when James Mason, oddly enough, bought a house that Buster Keaton lived in in the 20s and he was married to one of the Talmadge sisters Mm -hmm. um, who were uh, a lot of drama, I think. And he was divorced by her in the 20s. His life was kind of upside down. He left that house, he, I think she kept his house, I don't know. But someone had put um, prints of all his movies in a, screen, in a screening room in a, a kind of closet that had been walled over, and uh, James Mason was restoring the screening room, opened that up and found prints of all of Buster Keaton's films. Mm. So we have them, but Buster Keaton lived thinking they're gone forever, they yeah. don't exist, all those things I did. So I find that really. What's
1: well, interesting, because you you actually, you never made the mistake he did, which was signed with a Holly, was signed with Hollywood. I mean, and you kept control of your negative. That's been something that's been really important to you, <laughs> personally. I know is um, actually keeping physically keeping the negatives and keeping control.
2: Well, I keep ownership of them, and I have co- copyright control of all my stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm very stubborn. So. But, you know, it's something they've... Get. I started off demanding that, and then I never go back as a precedent. And because my films aren't that expensive, I'm able to do that. But, you know, I do license them for long periods of time. So mm-hmm. some of the licenses are 20 years or so. Yeah. But then eventually they the rights all belong to me and the negatives, so...
1: And, uh, could you talk a bit about Benini about how you found him? I mean, this was really a film that launched him for American audiences. Well, one
2: thing for this scene particularly, um, he improvised almost all of that. We just had a, I just had a rough idea to give him about cooking the rabbit and talking about his experience as a child with his mother raising rabbits. But his English was so limited that he was just calling on things... <laughs> You know, he t- I was shocked when he said, I love my mother. You know, certain things he said, he was just improvising. Those are the real names of his sisters and his parents. Um, he was just trying to pull whatever English he had out. <laughs> and he made a very, very beautiful scene, scene out of yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and we met in uh, Italy because I was, uh, the one and only time I was a member of a jury, I was in a small festival called uh, Salsa Maggiore. And uh, Roberto, a friend of mine... Oh, this is a long story. I don't know if it's worth it. I think I've told it before. <laughs> a friend of mine, Enzo Ungari, an Italian writer, um, was writing with Bertolucci, the last emperor. And uh, he was a friend, and I had mutual friends, and his wife, Marika, used to was Dutch and used to work at the Rotterdam Film Festival. And Enzo died very young, tragically. Um, and so Mareca was working for this film festival and she called me and said would you come and be on the jury and it was a chance to see her and some other friends of mine and a a mutual friend a friend of hers was Roberto Benigni and he was going to be on the jury but I didn't know, I had never met him I knew nothing about him so we were on this five member jury with Robert Wise and Alan Tanner, and Roberto and I were the bad kids because the the head of the festival would find us, when we were supposed to be watching films, he'd find us like out in an alley smoking cigarettes and talking broken French because he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Italian, so we spoke in probably infantile French. But we talked endlessly for a week. Uh, you know, We couldn't stop talking with each other about everything. So we became very close, very fast, and then I went from there to Rome... I had a little treatment I was working on of a story for John, Lurie, and, and Tom Waits, but I had something missing that I hadn't found yet. Hmm. And I found it. It was Roberto. And then I, I wrote something and then gave it to him, and someone translated it just by reading. And he said, oh, Very good. i like for to do this thing with you. you know? <laughs> so then I went home and wrote the script. And, uh, and now Roberto remains a very close friend, and I, I talk to him like... At least one Sunday out of every month, and he's coming soon to do his Dante uh, oh, performance in New York, that's so great. but he is an amazing character, but mm. we had a lot of fun playing jokes on him with his English and all that <laughs> but really an amazing person, uh, really a kind of idiot savant in a way, you know <laughs> because he's from very rural Tuscany, and yet he has committed to memory like. Hundreds of pages of Italian poetry. Mm. He's constantly reading philosophy and, uh, all, you know, all kinds of stuff, uh, theoretical physics, and you know, he's really amazing character, I think. And he eats like a horse. (laughs) And he remains so thin. And I think it's because his brain burns it all off.
0: Because
2: his brain is always as he would say, my brain is on fire. (laughs) And he's always man, so much going on in in him always. So he's not what he appears. He's not Mm -hmm. the clown that he reverts to like at the Oscars and stuff. But he's a very different person really. So Mm. still very funny, but not that kind of slapstick funny.
1: Well, uh, so you wound up making three films um, that have, of your first three commercial films that have... Are they commercial? Well...
2: (laughs) They were commercially (laughs) They might not have been blockbuster
1: uh, (laughs) hits, but they were were in theaters. People paid to see them. Um, So Mystery Train. Mystery Train was the next one, and that is, uh, of course... Go ahead, you can applaud if you want. Um, And that's um, set in Memphis, and you... Have <laughs> yeah, <Okay. laughs> just keep naming random cities. Um, so, anyhow, let's see a scene from this. I don't think it needs much of a setup because um, instead of making it to Graceland, this Japanese couple gets a tour of uh, Sun Record Studios. so
0: was first opened by radio announcer and engineer Sam Phillips in the year 1952. His first objective was to record some of the race music that had come up from the Delta, but was being recorded up north, and Sam thought and I thought, well, why should I have to go up north to record it when I can record it right here? Well, it was right here in this very room where Mr. Phillips recorded the likes of Howlin' Wolf, Rufus Thomas, Charlie Feathers, the Prisoners, James Cotton, Johnny Cash, Billy Riley, Carl Perkins, Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, and of course the king, the rock and roll himself, the Elvis Presley. In June 1953, this young man just graduated from Heem's High School and he found his way on over to Sun studio. The fourth song that he said was for his mom's birthday, but his mom's birthday was months away, so. Anyway, Sam found the, friend the song he liked and he said, and I quote, that's what I like, that's what I'm looking for, that's more like it. Y'all keep playing it. But well, they were excited. They got a song that was soon played on the radio by DJ Dew Philips in the year 1954, probably July 9th or 10th, and he would have to play that song somewhere between 7 and 11 times that night. Well, the switchboard stayed lit up there. People wanted to know Black white, calls for black calls for called. Call, but the bottom line was the song was gonna be a hit. I <laughs> no なんか Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: I just couldn't resist running it to we see that movie theater. But also you, you work with Robbie Mueller here who also shot um, the previous film Down by Law but you make yes. this move to color and um, we get a, a little bit of a sense of it here. There's a real beautiful control of, of color of, of um, controlling the elements of, of the landscape.
2: Yeah, and we were kind of coding objects in the film in okay. color. As the, the red things were uh, you know, specific um, but yeah, Robbie Mueller, uh, amazing. Uh, wow, I st- still am amazed that I got to collaborate with him on s- so many films. Hmm. Some really a gift. Uh, one of the great cinematographers for me. So yeah, that was. But I, I just realized that that scene has more dialogue in it than some of my other films in their entirety. I think. <laughs> and that actress, uh, jo- Jodie Markell, is oh, from Sun- Memphis, and oh, really? uh, she's still we're still friends. And she, she, uh, you know, I wrote that, but she had to deliver it that fast. You know, it's, <laughs> it's fun.
1: Do they do a tour of Sun Records?
2: Uh, I think they do, but it's not like that. It's <laughs> not a, But it was amazing to film in that very room. It was kind of exciting.
1: And um, that film has, um, you know, the structure of three different, sort of three different interweaving stories. Uh, Could you talk about sort of coming up with with that? I think all of your films have this sort of interesting structure to them. In the previous ones, we, we saw you kind of throwing three interesting characters together and kind of seeing what would happen. And here um and then in the next film we're going to see you doing these sort of multi-part films
2: yeah i don't know i mean as some critics think my films are kind of formless but i'm very uh Mm. form oriented so form is very interesting to me and important to me this film you know this film made little references to uh the canterbury tales in that they're on a a journey to you know they're on a kind of quest uh And also things like the, um, and which is interlocking stories, Mm -hmm. um, which reminded me of train cars, hence the title, and trains in the film. Um, These three stories happen simultaneously, but we jump back and start from the beginning of each one. So I was thinking also of, uh, I love uh, the Decameron, Boccaccio, where it's people just telling stories. And, and them being linked together to make something out of it. So, yeah, I was interested in the form for sure. A lot of the street signs are names of poets, and make some reference to those things. There's She even says, Chaucer Street at one point, you know. <laughs> um, which in New Orleans, uh, I mean, in Memphis, there are a lot of streets named after poets, mm. too, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> but... Yeah, I don't know. Where were we?
1: And you've got, uh, right here, and, and you've got, of course, Benigni. Uh, <laughs> Wish r- I was here. <laughs> uh, Benigni reciting poetry, down by law, reciting uh, Robert Frost, or Bob Frost, as he calls yes. him.
2: Yes, <laughs> and Walt Whitman, yeah. and Bob
1: Frost. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Night on Earth, you came up with this sort of interesting uh, formal structure of basically having the situation that repeats five times with variations of, of, of cab rides around the yeah, world. Yeah,
2: an, uh, another important word for me is variations because mm. I love variations and I love how they're used in everything in architecture and pop music and classical music and fashion and, you know, the idea of variations, of endless variations is something much more valuable than the idea of an original story to me. Mm. So I love Variations of things. And uh, Night on Earth is also simultaneous, but uh, five stories in five different cities that happen at the same time. And again, incidental moments that you would probably leave out of another film.
1: So so we're going to see... The one we're going to um, see a clip from is the New York one with Rosie Perez. And there's a lot of dialogue in this. Not... Um... <laughs> She's being pushed into a cab by Giancarlo Esposito. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: um, I, I think that you'd said that you originally thought this was going to be sort of a real easy thing, you know, just car, you know, just shooting in cars, very, very simple setup, and it would be like sort of, sort of easy to film. But you found maybe.
2: Yeah, I was preparing another film, and it spent a lot of time on it, and then it wasn't happening, and then I got very frustrated. So I wrote. this script in about nine days. And what I really just wanted to do was think of actors that I knew or wanted to work with and wrote for them. So uh, then I thought, well, I wrote it so fast and it's all in cars and it'll be easy to shoot. But it was very difficult to shoot. And uh, shooting in cars all the time and moving to... three cities, in four, uh, five cities in four countries with different crews in each one except for our main crew, um, was very complicated um, and exhausting. But I, I made a miscalculation, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but it was still fun to, to make, and I got to work with a lot of amazing people that I wrote it for, you know, friends of mine in Finland and in Paris and, and Roberto, again, in Italy So uh, and these guys who were wonderful. uh, So it was fun, but difficult.
1: And the idea of personality, of sort of looking at personality and and letting, using cinema to reveal personality instead of being sort of stuck in telling a story, seems so central to what to what you do. Is that something that you got? Came partly out of, of looking at Hollywood movies, looking at directors like like Nick Ray or Howard Hawks, the directors who, you know, capture so much of the personality of the actors in their work.
2: Yeah, and I, I just like when characters uh, drive the thing, your interest in it as a story, and I, I also like actors that uh, are reacting and not acting out the meaning of something. So, yeah, I'm very attracted to characters sort of first I, I usually start with a character or a certain actor that i'm imagining as a type of character and then start collecting other ideas uh, around that so they remain uh central for me somehow yeah uh, okay
1: what well, i think there's a real sort of sh- um Advance and Dead Man. There's so much in, in the film. I think you, uh, we'll we'll uh, talk about it a bit after. We're going to see a clip with, with Johnny Depp and um, Robert Mitchum. You got the amazing Robert Mitchum to uh, to work with. Um, yeah,
2: his last film. In fact. Really. Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, let's let's what we'll do is we'll watch the clip first. Um, this is just a, an, an encounter. The one, I think they're sort of one scene together. The, these characters. Uh, Johnny is Depp is William plays a character named William Blake. Is
2: John Hurt in this too?
1: Uh, yeah, we do see him at the at the uh, beginning. One of my favorite
0: actors. I insist on speaking to Mr. Dickinson. You? I insist. I insist. You insist. Yes, I do. Well, go on, then, lad. There's the door. All right, then. Go on, lad. I will. Yes, sir. I did uh, get in Cleveland. What the hell are you doing in my office? Well, I, I, I came to talk about my job. The only job you're going to get in here is pushing up daisies from a pine box. Now get out. Thank you very much, sir.
2: I like how they have to open the magic door. Each
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is such a multi-layered film. You, I mean, even the, the scene we just saw, which has a sort of uh, dream, you know, dreamlike quality to it, you're sort of reinventing the Western. You, there are sort of magical moments in the film, sort of s- surreal moments. And the film explores so many different things. I know you said you don't like to analyze your films, but you're obviously exploring... American history, exploring different cultures. We didn't include um, the the Native American character who, who befriends um, Blake. boy yeah,
2: played by Gary Farmer, yeah. uh, another amazing person.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm curious sort of about the combination of your, uh, you know, what your ambitions were for the film and what you were exploring. Um, and then I guess we can get into the whole... Um, Story well, about what happened to the film. You know, the,
2: uh, the films I made before this I considered like genreless, or they would be very difficult to yeah. assign a genre to them. And this film, I wanted to use the genre of a Western because it's so laden with metaphors and such a great kind of frame in which you can express so many things, uh, especially often about America and as a place and as a you know, as a country so um, yeah, I tried to make a film where I could have more somehow more layers in it, I could make it more, even more referential and hopefully let you follow it on the surface um, without really paying all that much attention to those things but, but trying to get a lot of them in there so it was a kind of departure for me that uh, that it was also a very difficult film to make because we we couldn't raise the money that it required because they said uh, they wanted you know people putting money and said if you make it in color we'll give oh. you the extra two million that you need or whatever but I refused so we were traveling around and. Um, trucks with horses and period wardrobe and shooting in locations where you can't see a road or a telephone pole or you know Hmm. so it was uh, another really difficult one to make but uh, I'm very proud of it because we did what we we wanted and uh, we pulled it off so and Miramax sort of was famously
1: kind of resistant or dismissive I don't know what the right word is but they they didn't
2: Boost, yeah, Mira, boost the film very much well Miramax um, bought the film after it was completed and then immediately asked to have producers titles on it and a re-edit on it and I was like Manny you know you signed a contract which anyway I won't go into all of right. that but uh, so in the end they I think it was uh, Jay Hoberman said the film was released with tongs which right. is kind of how it was released I I had a funny thing happen, like, a few years after the film came out, two, like, skateboard kids were following me on the street, like, wait, 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 stop, man, you're Jim, right? I'm like, yeah. You made that film Dead Man. And I said, yes. They said, that is our favorite film of all time. We've seen it, like, 12 times, but only on, you know, video, because I think we were out of town the two days it showed in the theater. they were laughing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thanks. I guess. But well,
1: I, I mentioned um, i at the beginning mentioned the retrospective that we did at the museum in 1997, and, and it was because of Deadman that we wanted to do that, and and um, Miramax said no, I, I don't think this is the one you want to do a retrospective with, and then, so we did. We showed Year of the Horse
2: instead. So nice to feel supported. Right. <laughs> Um, but, but you know, the thing is, I wasn't, I'm not bitter about uh, Miramax's uh, releasing it with Tongs, because the film, I knew, I mean, it's, what is it? It's a psychedelic, black and white, slow moving Western that veers into I don't know what. So <laughs> it was, just because it has Johnny Depp, it doesn't assure it's going to be a blockbuster. So I was not right. expecting it to be a yeah. commercial hit I, I would have appreciated a little more support right. I mean we had a premiere for the film at the Miramax screening room um, which is <laughs> about one eighth of this size and they had two screenings and a little cocktail thing in between and I said to Harvey Weinstein you know this is really this is really not a premiere Harvey <laughs> I mean this is all we get and he said he said wise up you know Get used to it. This isn't a premiere. This is a photo op. So get over there with Alan Ginsberg and get your picture taken. <laughs> <laughs> so, whoa. Anyway, that was our premiere. Okay. Was. I was given a piece of cheese and uh, a glass of water.
1: <laughs> well, so. you could have had it in Astoria. but
2: Yeah, but thanks to you, uh, that we, it was shown the next year in a, in a beautiful way. But... It, it was released, but...
1: One, one yeah. of the things that the film does do, you talked about the type of movie it is, but it, it, it explores ideas of uh, s- transcendence and spiritualism and sort of ways of living um, that you start to explore more and more in films. So, so this is kind of a segue into the next film that we're going to look at, which is um, Ghost Dog, uh, The Way of the, of the Samurai. So why don't we just look at, that, at a clip? This is... Um, the big shootout scene. You know, films don't have a lot of big shootout, action-packed scenes, so this is... Uh, I'm just going to jump right to this with Forrest Whitaker. When
0: one has made a decision to kill a person. Even if it will be very difficult to succeed by advancing straight ahead, it will not do to think about going at it in a long, roundabout way. The way of the samurai is one of immediacy, and it is best to dash in headlong. Hello, I'm Bob Solo. I'm at Westside Realty. I have an appointment with Mr. Vargo. How the hell did you get in the gate, Mr. Solo? Oh, Mr. Valerio? He gave me the call? But this is a very important meeting, and I may have a
2: buyer for the estate. You know what? Go inside, Sammy. and check this out. I'll stay here with him, Mr. Solo. You mind if I get out and stretch my legs for a second? No, you stay in the car, Mr. Solo.
0: Hey, why don't I give you my card?
2: been expecting you.
1: So uh, you know, I think you're responding to a few things. One is this um, this book about the sort of way of the samurai that that describes this um, you know almost Zen approach to life. Uh, and of, and uh, but the samurais are, are warriors, and you're responding to something in Forrest Whitaker, who um, you know can sort of project these these opposing qualities of uh, you know of violence and, and control and, and rage and serenity at the same time. We saw that in um, You know, last king of Scotland, of course, that other side of him. Could you talk about?
2: Well, I I love those qualities of Forrest, and I love how he's just uh, so—I don't know—empathetic and human. You know, it's something very. I've just always loved his presence on screen. I just, whoever he's playing, uh, unless it's Zeddy, I mean, but you know, (laughs) something goes out from your heart, and even what he did with that was very complex. So. it was really great to work with him, and we had the great Henry Silva in that scene, who gets shot from yeah. known in the Manchurian Candidate, uh, Johnny Cool, uh, <laughs> other films. But I, I've always been a fan of him, so I was lucky to have him in the film. Um, again, shot by Robbie Mueller. Um, it was a film that I kind of collaged a lot of things together you while that, creating so it. it.
1: As okay, and but and also responding to the. The structure of the book—you have the, you separate scenes with these sort of aphorisms—and and
2: yes, they're from a book called *The Hagakure*, which was the the code of the samurai, um, which is really a, a philosophical book of preparation as a warrior. Um, so I have that in there. I have you know, hip hop RZA did the score for the film um, from the Wu Tang Clan. Uh, there's some eastern obviously eastern philosophy uh in in the hagakure and then there's this kind of washed out gangsters that are kind of past their place in history that are kind of whimsical in a way um and one thing i wanted to say though because i i tend to say often that well i i write for certain actors and then i have them in my film but uh I, for central actors, that's the case, but I have to talk about um, Ellen Lewis, who I work with, a, a casting um, director, and I've worked with her since Dead Man. She works with uh, Marty Scorsese, so I, I have to get her when I, I can, but she is amazing. So she helps me find the right ca- the right actors for those people I haven't written for specifically. And uh, we've worked all these years together, and she is really something very important to me as a collaborator. So sometimes it just seems like, yeah, I I just write for them, and here they come, you know, but I got to say, Ellen Lewis is like my collaborator on the casts. so...
1: Okay, and, uh, well, actually, we have three more clips, and they all feature Bill Murray, who... um, (laughs) Uh, well actually this one without Bill Murray but uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, the next clip we're going to see is from Bro- Broken Flowers um, so why do, actually why don't we look at that and then we'll talk about we'll talk about him um
0: you or something? Donnie, is that you? Hey, Laura. What are you doing here? checking for dinner. Then Larry exploded in a ball of flames at the traffic. <laughs> that happened. And now it's just me and Lo. Hey, yeah, it was even on TV. I'm sorry. Lo, well, your head looks just like a pineapple. Yeah, it does look like a pineapple.
2: So what uh, Where do you work?
0: Oh, mom has her own business, right? <laughs> really? I'm a professional closet organizer. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I organize people's closets. I even do their drawers. I label everything. I get them all organized. Yeah, and they pay her for that. It's amazing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Lolita. I you, Lolita. I said you could I said you could have a, a taste. No, come on, sit up. to that. That's not cool.
1: Lolita. Interesting choice of name mark. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I mean, you achieve a tone in this film. There's a line in "Down by Law" that Roberto Benigni's character says that um, he sort of goes around spouting. Uh, it's a sad and beautiful world, and the sort of combination of comedy and, and poignance. Uh, you really capture that. A lot of it, of course, you found an actor who can really express that. But I don't know if you could talk. I guess about either how about how Bill Murray brings that quality and then how you sort of set the tone created that tone
2: oh man uh,
1: <laughs> that's
2: yeah. uh, I just you know I wrote this one for Bill um, I really wanted to, to have him to work with him on a character that was very low key uh, sort of underplayed um, I thought he would improvise a bit more, but he decided he liked the script and didn't really improvise. Mm-hmm. We didn't rehearse anything. We just walked around a lot talking for hours, taking long walks sort of around the character. And that was what he, he we needed to find the character. But we didn't rehearse scenes specifically. Yeah. Um, but he did stick pretty close to the script I had written. Um, But I I just think his range is amazing. And, you know, actors get thought of for certain things. Uh, It's always sort of, for me, I don't know, strange. It's similar for me with Sharon Stone. You know, people have a certain image of Sharon Stone. But she's really a lovely actor. When I saw her in Casino, I just thought, man, she is amazing, you know. And yet they usually sort of typecast certain people for certain things and I, I try not to get stuck with those things. But Bill, um, now we've done three things together and I, I just really love... I've seen him also, his procedure change. Mm. Um, like the th- the new film, The Limits of Control, he actually wanted to rehearse the scene and he did not want to change any word of dialogue at all. Although the dialogue so... Li- limited in the limits of control that it's very precise, so there wasn't that same room, although if he had had ideas, I would have wanted to play with them, but uh, he's, I just really love his uh, reactiveness, you know.
1: uh, And I guess before, uh, so before we get to limits of control, we get to see a a bit of the uh, sort of lunatic side of Bill Murray, I guess, in this next clip, because we're going to see a a little bit of uh, coffee and cigarettes, so. Why don't we show that clip? Which was, uh, I guess, a, uh, a series of short films that you made over the years that was turned into a yeah. feature. Yeah, he's
2: with uh, Reza and Giza from Wu Tang. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody need more coffee? Kitchen stoves? No, we,
0: don't, we don't mess with caffeine. Do you? you don't? No, I don't. Those who caffeine, you can call it serious delirium. Delirium? Serious delirium. It's a well, nightmare. Well, that may be my problem. Lyric. <laughs> Aren't you Bill Murray, man? Bill Murray? Yeah, Bill Murray. But uh, let's keep that just between us, alright? Yeah, okay. Just between us. Uh, and you guys are uh, related? Yeah, you cousins, we family, bro. you're messing with me you now because you're. You're both Troublemakers. Troublemakers. The Wu-Tang Clan. Right, Wu-Tang Clan. You're Jizza, the genius. That's right. And you're Rizza, a.k.a. Bobby Dizzer. Yeah, you know it's hip-hop, girl. You, know. you know it's hip-hop. And <laughs> you're Bill Murray. Bill, Groundhog day ghost busting ass Murray. You're <laughs> <Bill Hall, laughs> just going to kill <laughs> so what do you mean you don't tell nobody, Bill Murray? I mean... You're going to come here, they're going to see you. You're Bill Murray. it's obvious. Unless you're wearing a disguise or something. Though I am wearing a disguise. <laughs> Damn, that's harsh, money. You're a real caffeine junkie, aren't you? Just give it
1: a just
0: You know, before I gave that up, I used to drink it every night every single night up until it was time to go to sleep just to make me dream faster you know like when they flash those cameras on those empty 500 cars and they just <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's how my dreams were just whizzing
0: by he's <laughs> stupid yo he is stupid isn't <laughs> Water, I know guy okay. freezes coffee with sticks in it, has himself a coffee popsicle, calf pop. A calf pop. <coughs> Damn! That don't sound too good, Bill Murray. It's not fluid. <laughs> <laughs> Mother's coffee. Uh, that's what I'm trying to tell you. The nicotine, man. Nicotine interferes with your central nervous system, your respiratory system. I mean, in very small doses, it causes paralysis.
2: <laughs> you know I still I. whenever I talk to Bill Murray I still always call him Bill Murray <laughs> always like hey Bill Murray I call him on the phone hey Bill Murray like Bob Dahl too you, you yeah know? Bob Dahl I, I don't talk to him you don't? I, don't, I, don't, I don't know him
1: he probably would be good actually he's got a sense of humor, you could maybe yeah hmm. but um, maybe with did, bill
2: Murray yeah
1: no. did you um again, this is sort of variations on a theme because each of the coffee and cigarette films is a coffee, it sort of ends with an overhead shot, but you have the uh, different actors, and did the actors you know what was the collaboration with the actors on, on these?
2: Uh, Well, I really wanted to encourage... I had scripts for them, but I wanted to encourage improvisation as much as I could. I thought of these as kind of like cartoons, you know. And uh, a lot of the dialogue repeats from other ones, like two of the jokes in this about uh, drinking coffee before you go to sleep so your dreams can whiz by are from Stephen Wright in an earlier one. And Mm -hmm. also Stephen Wright... Made up the thing about I like to freeze them and make you know coffee popsicles, yeah. but a lot of the dialogue repeats throughout different ones, not the same dialogue, but yeah. anyway, it's again about variations for me so and, and the actors were playing themselves, um, I mean not really, but, but we were there we're making they were making fun of themselves, which is a lot of fun, and they have a lot of fun doing that so. Yeah. There's one with uh, Alfred Molina and Steve Coogan where they really make fun of themselves as actors. and uh, So they were a lot of fun, and and Bill was great. Uh, We didn't even know. This is the first thing I did with Bill, and um, he told me several days before, he said, just call me the night before, leave the location and time on on my answering machine, which I did, but I had no idea if he'd even show up, Mm -hmm. you know? But he was there right at that time, so parked his own car, you know, drove in, so he was there.
1: Well, we're, we're not going to make it to the future tonight, but we're, we arrived at the present with your new film, uh, Limits of Control. Hey, that's
2: all you can expect, <laughs> to arrive at the present.
1: So, uh, w- well, I've seen the film. I can't wait to see it again. It's an amazing movie, um, and it's, 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 first of all, st- Star is an actor um, who you've worked with a few times. Um, so it, I guess raises, it feels like a film where you must have had this actor in mind or certain qualities about him.
2: Yes, Izak DeBancolay I worked with four times. We've been friends for 20 years, and uh, he's a close friend, but there's something about... I always, over for at least 15 years, had in the back of my head that someday I'm going to make a film with Izak where he is very quiet, very controlled, very cool, kind of criminal that can't be swayed from his mission. And I'm going to center a film around him where he's very, he doesn't speak much. And so this finally is a result. But uh, I've been kind of fermenting this thing for a, quite a long time for him. So kind uh, of, he was the beginning of this idea. Yeah. Well,
1: so let's, uh, to, we have two clips to look at to give you a flavor of it. We'll watch the first one, which is uh, another coffee scene. So, but this and this film is all uh, shot in Spain, and the uh, landscape is yeah.
0: ¿Usted no habla español, ¿verdad?
2: No.
0: Hola. ¿La señorita va a querer tomar algo? Agua sin gas, por favor. Are you interested in films by any chance?
1: I mean, one thing, there's a lot of different things to say about this film. One thing to say, which doesn't totally come through in the clip, is the amazing um, use of color in this film. It's just a um, stunningly expressive film and, and carefully worked out in color. And it's a remarkable collaboration. You work with the um, cinematographer Christopher Doyle. And I really felt like you were sort of bringing out the best in each other, like you, you pr- pr- I'm sure had a reason for picking him, but this is not like, really not like his other films. It feels like you kind of gained from each other, working with each other.
2: Well, yeah, I've known him for a long time, 12 years or so, and uh, we always planned to do something together. We made one uh, music video together for the Rock on Tours, Jack White's band, the first video, uh, which we shot mostly on uh, little uh, toy video cameras. But, um, you know, people keep saying to me, well, it's so different than Chris Doyle's other work, but, you know, he's very varied. Um, yeah. People tend to assign to him this, like, master of handheld Just, and right. from the Wong Kar Wai films, but yeah. he's done, you know, he made a remake of Psycho with Gus Van Zandt, which was very carefully framed, and uh, his work with, like, Philip Noyce is quite different than what he's done with, and, of
1: course, the mood for love is, diff- is different than the yes. other Wong Kar Wai films. Yes.
2: So he's really quite variable, actually. And uh, for me, but just to go back, uh, the Broken Flowers was shot by Frederick Elms, as right. was Night on Earth, who's another yeah. amazing uh, yeah. cinematographer. So I've been re- so lucky. But Chris is a really kind of, um, he's someone that has so many ideas going by, like he's a river full of fish, And they just don't stop. And you can take out the ones you want and work with those. And he has no ego about which ones you choose because he's got more and more coming. So you kind of have to temper what you pull from him because there's too much coming in a way. Not too much, but there's more than enough, like way more. So, But if you pull out, you know, if 30 fish go by and you take out two and say, "I, I like these two fish, he'll say, you do? fantastic let's do something with those fish you know i mean he's not like what about the other ideas you know yeah. and his ideas he's very uh, of the moment which is very important for the making of this film because yeah. this film was made with a 25 page short story that i wrote and i i said i'm not going to write a conventional script i'm going to start with this and Work on it as we make the film because yeah you're... because it's about intuitive it needed that intuitive way of finding itself as we went it needed to grow it's the nature of the film if you see it um, maybe that'll be more clear it's also again I don't like referring like comparing my films but it's to me in a way related in certain way to Dead Man where I got a lot of layers of different themes into it. And this film has a lot of little Interconnective things all through it That you don't have to find But you can find them It's like a treasure hunt if you're open to them But you can also just let the surface go Without necessarily clocking in all those things But it's very laden with references And little things for for my own amusement I guess (laughs) I, I don't know but the whole film's built that was built that way, uh, on intuition. So Chris was very important. Um, Chris, he doesn't think about how shots necessarily might cut together, which I have to be careful with him. But man, every shot is beautiful, and every camera position he finds is something very, very strong. And then it's up to me to guide those so they fit together and... You know, I always collaborate very closely with the DP. Yeah. So, uh, but working with him was kind of an important thing for me to kind of, I don't know, open me a little bit, especially to that following your intuition and keeping your antenna up constantly, you know? And so he, he was a real, uh, important part of this film. Um, I'm proud, uh, one of our producers is here too, Gretchen McGowan, who, uh, produced this film. We shot it all in Spain. So I'm I'm proud she's here. But, uh, you know, Chris is someone that really isn't a cinematographer in his mind. Um, He makes collages, paintings, Uh, collages made of photographic things, and he makes books of them. Hopefully he'll have more and more shows of them. Um, I hope we put a collection of them on our DVD that he made while we were making this film. He mm. calls them from the film, but not of the film, or mm. of the film, but not from. I don't know. I don't know where he gets the energy to. This film was very hard to shoot with a very short schedule, and uh, Chris during the shoot, made about 50 collages. I don't know when the hell he was doing that, but and they're really exquisite and beautiful. So I think he thinks of himself not really as a DP in a way, although he's very totally knowledgeable of all the, even the technical aspects of it, but those are not what guide him, you know, so it was an important collaboration, sometimes a difficult one because he's crazy. (laughs) Because he's wild, you know. I think uh, Keith Richards met him and said, uh, "He's the Keith Richards of cinematographers." <laughs> he certainly. But I, I would yeah. say, no, no. Keith Richards is the Christopher Doyle of rock and roll, you know, because he, he's really.
1: Well, certainly, when you see him in person, he's he's like a maniac. So that's that's why I was sort of curious about.
2: But that's co- what attracted me to him as a friend a long time ago. That he's a yeah. maniac, you know. Yeah. And full of ideas, and we interconnect in a lot of places. So, uh, really important uh, part of this film.
1: But there's such control in the film. You're responding to the landscape. I'm sure that's one reason why you um, had this intuitive process, because it's very much about the landscape as you go through Spain and the buildings and
2: architecture. Um, Well, it is and it isn't. You know, it's not a travel, it's not a film where you see touristic things of Spain. Right. But we wanted to capture, we shot in Madrid, which is very cosmopolitan. We shot in one of my favorite cities on this planet, uh, Seville, Mm -hmm. Sevilla. And then we shot outside of Almeria in the south in the mountains. And Almeria is where all the spaghetti westerns were shot and a lot of big. Epic films from Hollywood, King of Kings, that kind of stuff. So it's a kind of strangely familiar landscape by, through cinema for me. So um, and the film kind of becomes like a western in a way. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so Spain was important to us, but not in a way the film could have been made in Turkey or Mexico or you know. But Spain kept pulling me. When I was writing the little story. So, things that I knew in Spain ended up in the film and pulled me yeah. to write it for being in Spain.
1: But you seem to like this idea of places that are not so specific. Like Ghost Dog, you can't tell exactly where it's set. And certainly, yeah. A Stranger in the Paradise, you create a
2: city that doesn't quite feel like. Well, <laughs> like yeah, and when we were filming Broken Flowers, people would ask uh, the people on the crew, where does it take place? And we would say, Generica. Because you don't know where it is in in Broken Flowers. It's just kind of suburban America. Yeah. So (laughs) we have one more
1: scene, which um, is towards the end of the film. Um, You'll figure out right away that some words um, that are cleaned up a little bit, not blipped out, but this is somewhat they're censored. Well, well, this is because
2: these clips were prepared to give to like TV. TV, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's not a funny character. (laughs) Um, I mean, people expect, they see Bill Murray and they start laughing because it's, you know, Bill, ghost-busting ass, groundhog day, you know. But in this, he's very, uh, he's not, uh, there's nothing funny in his performance at all, which was really interesting for me to, to, you know, that was an intention. Yeah, Which uh, he's done before, like Mad Dog and Glory had a very complicated kind of nasty character that wanted to be a comedian but wasn't funny, you know.
1: Um, somehow we haven't talked much about music tonight, so I just want to give a chance because we were, um, the entrance music that we had on in the beginning was music that you composed and played, um, and then there's uh, music by this incredible Japanese group. Um, Boris. Yeah, Boris. Boris. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you could talk specifically about the, the music in this film, it's really um, extraordinary.
2: Well, I always start, you know, music is always my, one of my first things of inspiration. And when I find music that seems, a, seems to trigger something that is opening my imagination for the story or the film, the atmosphere of the thing I'm trying to, in the initial stages, write, um... That music becomes very, very important to me, and I don't... Uh, it usually ends up in the film, or, or some some element of it. Uh, for example, when I was writing uh, Dead Man, I was listening to a lot of uh, Crazy Horse and, and the more instrumental sections of their stuff. Um, when I was writing Ghost Dog, I was listening to the RZA's uh, instrumental mixes on the B-side of DJ vinyl that I was collecting. Um... In this film, I was listening to Boris and the band Sun, and they end up being very important in the the film. But I knew that I wanted that kind of slow, heavy, psychedelic stuff that I find in in those bands, Sun and um, Boris and Earth. And there's a little piece from a band I love, uh, the Black Angels... So that music became a kind of formative or I- inspirational for me. And there's actually two separate
1: CDs coming out.
2: Yeah, well so. then we couldn't find... Uh, the, we had trouble finding music that to use for cert- these certain parts in the film um, when he goes to museums mostly. And um, so m- our band, and Carter Logan is here, is the other... There's three of us in our band, <laughs> so we'd made some music for this for the film, some instrumental tracks that are going to come out on a little EP at the same time as the soundtrack record, and we're working on an, a record also now, our own album. So, but the music in the film, there there are those there are three elements in this film that 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 kind of genre of rock and roll. I don't know. I, people call it a lot of different things. Right. Um, and then some flamenco stuff that is all a primarily a certain form of flamenco that I only discovered while researching ideas about the film, called petanera, which is a kind of almost like the blues of flamenco. It's slow, and the dancing is very gestural with hands, more than like the stomping feet type of style. And then there's uh, Schubert's... Uh, the Adagio from Schubert's String Quintet—that is ex- extremely beautiful—that is woven through the film in place. So it has three very diverse kind of f- things, but they all are woven into the the, the film. The films
1: always sort of combine different elements, and w- one thing I really like about them is that you. Um, this is a real film lovers movie. I mean, the, as you watch it, you there are sort of echoes of Jacques Rivette and the sort of you know conspiracy that you can ever quite figure out and certainly Antonioni and the landscape and those sort of specific film references but but you don't seem like somebody who like feels like you have to separate film and life like I, I like the fact that art and poetry and books and films are just part of the fabric of the of how you see the world it's not like a separate thing
2: yeah to me uh it's all inspirations come from so many places I mean I, I was writing for some reason I couldn't sleep a few nights ago I was writing a list of things I love and I can't remember it was kind of a long list but it was things like uh wood and the texture of wood uh, the color of copper um bikinis on a female form uh The paintings on low riders of like sexy girls or Jesus, you know? Um, The different colors of different, the variations of skin tones of people on this planet. Once, man, I was on the subway, I saw a guy that was gray, I mean, almost (laughs) blue. And I think he was Moroccan from a certain place where their skin tone is blue-gray, you know? Or one time, like a year ago, I started almost tripping by looking at paint chips that you get. And I went to a store and I collected all the different colors of white that they had. (laughs) And I laid them out on a table and man, it was like hallucinatory. Because, (laughs) no, it was so beautiful. The subtle variations of, well, this one has a touch of pink and that a Mm -hmm. touch of gold and that blue and that gray... But if you held anyone up, it's just white, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I don't, But inspiration to me comes from anything that is striking or moving, and it could be a minor little detail of something, or or from, you know, I, I I love books and music and movies and paintings and all that stuff, but I also love just random things that might strike you by their form or their color or their smell or I don't know. So and uh, I draw on all those things uh, to try to make something uh, out of them when I try to make something. So. Okay,
1: well, so maybe we have arrived at the future because this list will somehow wind up as your next film.
2: So. I doubt <laughs> it, but you know, I could make a, a list like this. It might be a good exercise to try to make a new one every day, you mm-hmm. know, because I find it very strange when people say they're bored Right. And I, I just don't, I mean, I understand boredom, but there's so many things in the world that are so striking and strange and uh, and beautiful that to be bored is kind of strange to me in a way. Like, I, I like to wake up and think about all the, oh man, all the movies I haven't seen that exist or books I don't know about or, I don't know, it just seems like man or different species on the planet, all these things that it just amazes me that you'll never have enough time to absorb them.
1: And it seems like you've, like, in a way as you talk about that, it just seems like this is what so many of your characters do, is sort of find, in, in very different ways, like find ways to just sort of be in the moment, whether it's eating a TV dinner or, or um, uh, uh, you know, the character in Limits of Control who, you know, seems to be just, you know, he's got a mission to do, but he seems to just want to exist and, and uh,
2: take in what's around him. There are there things in the limits of control that struck you as funny or amusing as well? Because I don't know. Yeah. Because uh... sometimes I try to start out making something serious, but the always funny stuff comes in. I can't stop myself, and uh, I don't. One of my favorite quotes in the world is Oscar Wilde said, "Life is far too important to be taken seriously," but still, even when like Dead Man, I thought was going to be a really austere, heavy thing, but I couldn't stop. Funny things in it, you know. So it's just my nature, I guess.
1: Certainly in the Paz de Huerta character, I mean, there's a, there's a comic element to that. Yeah, I think it. there
2: are funny things throughout. Not yeah. like not like Bill Murray drinking out of a k- coffee. No. You know? But anyway. <laughs> but
1: you're not. You don't need to put a laugh track
2: on it. I think it'll. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> would be a little strange.
1: <laughs>
2: but it's a... Although, if Miramax released it. I don't... <laughs> It might be so inclined. I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great film. Do you feel satisfied with it, or do you not think that way?
2: Uh, I feel very happy because we were able to make the film the way we wanted to make it. Well, basically. Uh, yeah. it, schedule-wise, not really. But uh, <laughs> in terms of the, all the content and the collaborations, are all totally. we had total control over them. So we made the film we wanted to make, And uh, Focus Features financed the film and just totally respected that. Like, left me and the whole film basically alone, you know. So there was no interference. So I'm very proud that we made a strange film and it's (laughs) going to come out in theaters next week. So I'm very happy. Okay.
1: Well thanks so much for, for sharing this uh, with us. It's been well, amazing. thanks for having me, okay. and
2: thank you guys for coming. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by
2: generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.